When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's about to, uh, there you go. Let us know that we're recording. So anything awesome. you want to tell us that's, um, you know, you don't want the world to know. Too late. <laughs> Too late. Yeah. No, thanks. Where, where are you coming from, David? I'm in, I'm in Dallas, Texas at the moment, which is where oh. I kind of live in between movies. Got it. Really? Okay. Yeah. And I just wrapped production on Friday, a week ago today uh, in Canada. So I'm back home for the first time since November. What were you? What were you shooting? I was doing a Peter Pan for Disney. Oh God, that's right. Of course. Wait, wait. What's my? Who? Who? You wrote it with somebody? Uh, my buddy Toby, Toby Hobricks. Nope. Why do I feel like I know somebody who is working in? Tent? I don't know shit. Um, <laughs> I know someone you've been working with. I'm sure. They're, I'm they're sure. very it, fond of you. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. <laughs> it, it it is. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I can't wait. Um, uh, that'll, that'll be fun. Um, well, thanks. Thanks for, uh, uh, zooming at us, man. We're no, very, it's a pleasure. Um, and good to, good to meet you and Joe. Great to see you again. I'm since, uh, we met like a couple of years ago at Musso and Frank's. That's right. That's, yes. that's true. That's true. Well, Musso's is back open now. So perfect. Yeah. So we can re we can reunite <laughs> <laughs> when I'm, when I'm, when I'm ready to go back inside a restaurant, that'll be the yeah, first precisely. one. I'm, I'm precisely. still a little, little anxious about that. Um, although I did, uh, Joe, Joe couldn't, Joe had to watch the screener. I actually got to see uh, green Knight in a theater, um, which, uh, more than a lot of films, although I keep saying this, there's a million different reasons you have to see movies in theaters, but this one, I cannot imagine, uh, it, it, it's such a, it, it's a gorgeous film. Um, Thank you. Just, just, just to look at. Well, why and, do people make epics if they don't get to see them in a the theater? I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a no brainer. I mean, that's, that's why we go to the movies is to see yeah. That yeah, kind of the, thing and experience it with other people. Yeah, the, the grandeur, the communal grandeur of an experience like that is something I am addicted to as a moviegoer yeah. and uh, want to participate in as a filmmaker. So I'm, I'm as much as, as glad as I am that the movie is now available for anyone who can watch it at home. I'm really glad that, you know, it had its window on the big screen. It's still playing in some theaters right now, in fact. and Only, uh, only over a year late. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it's better, so like, sorry, we're doing a terrible job promoting it. It's it's I thought it was still just at theaters. It's now streaming as well. It last night it uh went on to iTunes. Yeah. And oh great, okay. So it's just now, just now as we speak, available uh at home. Great, or on your iPhone. Exactly, exactly. Which um, is certainly where you should watch it. Definitely. <laughs> That's where <laughs> double feature with Lawrence of Arabia on your I I'll admit that I have watched large chunks of it on an iPhone. Well, like I remember getting like I was like walking through London, getting like sound review reviews. And I was like, well, I could wait till I get home or I could just take an advanced look. And so I'd just be walking, like looking at my phone and being like, oh, this is how a lot of people will wind up seeing the movie. Should have done more close-ups. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, we, we do have a lot of close-ups, oddly enough. Like it's definitely, you know, we will talk about this later, but we, we got the camera pretty close to our actors' faces pretty consistently. And uh, yeah, it's a thing and, you do. And I've, I've tried to describe it to other people because it's, it's, uh, it's subtle, but it's very distinct. Um, you know, and, and uh, uh, I, I fall back on Terrence Malick a lot um, mm -hmm. to kind of describe yourself, but I go, but imagine if Terrence Malick's shots were 
as beautifully framed, but somehow almost always close-ups. I don't know yeah. how. <laughs> it's, and we uh, and we never do handheld. Like there, I think there's a there's one scene in this in Green Knight that we we did handheld on, but like the movie I just finished, like not a single frame was handheld. So that's like there was a lot of Malikian naturalism, but it's got a rigidity to it that uh, the his films you know don't have and. And I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> I, I I just love uh, I love stately dolly shots so much. That's that's where that's well, what it maybe, is. Maybe we'll figure it out today. Yes, exactly. Because I found this is a really interesting way to get people to talk about their own work in a kind of new way too. Um, oh, for sure. This is the movies that made me with your hosts Josh Olson and Joe Dante. talking to David Lowry, who's the uh, writer-director of The Green Knight um, and uh, several other films. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of a lot of your work. Um, I loved Old Man and the Gun. Um, and, uh, he did a pretty good remake of Pete's Dragon. Uh, Pete's Dragon is fantastic. A Ghost Story is, is, a, is a beautiful movie. And, and uh, um, uh, is it okay to say this when somebody has a movie out? Because I, I, I very much enjoy I, Green Knight's great. My, I yeah. think Body Saints. Is is such a beautiful film. I think it's, it's my my favorite of yours. And oh, that's not, amazing! Not to slight the new one. No, um, I, I I it means a lot to hear that because this is you know one of my very first films. So I I look at it and see all of the the growing pains, but to yeah. know that it's still that the movie still resonates from within those uh, or from from out of those uh, you know uh, you know all all the stretch marks of me like figuring out how to make movies with a crew and with actors and so on and so yeah. forth. There's still a movie there and that's good to hear. Well, actually speaking of stretch marks, this will be an oblique reference to uh, people who've seen the film will understand why I went from this to that. Um, people who haven't will have to see it, but um, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a manly man. I do manly things. I write yeah. crimey movies with people punching people in the face and that's sort of where I live. So I hate saying this in public, but um I'm not talking to you. That line in Ain't Them Body Saints, I just exploded into tears. It is just I, it's such a powerful scene. It's so beautiful. Oh, and I'm not going to tell anybody the context if you haven't seen the film. Um, but if you have, you know what I'm talking about. That I, is Jesus. That's <laughs> great to hear. I, he's, a, I, he's a known soft. Yeah, I am I, not. I don't dare you. And I haven't thought about that line in, in years. And now that you're reminding me of it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that is it means a lot to me. Yeah, no, it's it's lovely. In fact, it's, uh, we should all uh, take a minute and uh, gather ourselves up, and then we'll cut yes. and come back. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's very psyched to get you to come in, even before I'd seen the film, um, and now having seen it, uh, I also I was where they put these things the wrong way. How did you get a movie like that financed? Because you know, you hear the Green Knights coming out, and I'm like, oh, okay, it's going to be big CG. There's going to be yeah. battles. It's going to be like a Marvel movie set in you know ye olden times and Boy, is it not. Um, it is an, I mean, it's just, it's, I, I don't want to scare people away. In fact, I want people to come see it. It's anything but that, but it's like the kind of movie that took some money and I can't imagine a studio putting a nickel behind something like this. It's for adults. It's beautifully paced. It's dealing I, with issues that, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't think we would get it made. I wrote it on a whim and my thought was this will never, you know, I can't, 
I won't ever be able to finance this. It costs more than I thought it would. It's still a relatively low budget movie and we put every buck we possibly could on screen, but it's still like, I, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to make something like this again on that, on that scale, relatively small as it may, as it may be, but you know, all credit goes to our financiers at A24 and Leylines and Braun who just read the script and were like, we want to see this. We want to see this at the scale that it deserves to be seen at. And A24 had worked with me on a ghost story. So they knew, you know, I was like, there's no scenes of anyone eating pie for five minutes, but we are going to have, like the script says, like, Gawain rides away for like three minutes at a, you know, there's a long shot of him on a horse and it's going to last a while. There's, there are those Tarkovskian aspects to it. But I also described it as something that having like a pop sensibility, which it occasionally does in a weird way. And this is a weird way to describe it, but it's a very, it's a very memeable movie. <laughs> and I think they saw that. <laughs> and if you look at the marketing, they're capitalizing on it as, as strange and adult and at times off-putting as the movie may be, at least for like audiences who are going in expecting Lord of the Rings, there's something oddly modern about it. And mm -hmm. I think that those hooks are the things that hooked A24 and, and our co-financiers who all boldly, you know, got behind the movie very, very quickly. You know, from the time they read the script to the time they saw the first cut was about a year. Wow. Were you, uh, were you aware of the two previous attempts uh, to make this story by the same director? Yes. And the, <laughs> and the weirdest part about that is the movie he made prior to Sword of the Valiant was called The Ghost Story. That's right. That's, right. Which, That's weird. Which is so, I didn't know that initially. I found that out after the fact and it was like, what a mind-boggling coincidence. So I've seen most of Sword of the Valiant. Um, and we, we, we watched it in prep and I was like, kind of like halfway paying attention, halfway not, because I just didn't want to like right, right. get too too caught up in it. Um, and I mean, and I, I was familiar with the imagery from like the documentary about Canon films and Golan Globus and everything. So I knew about it. And then I haven't seen his earlier iteration of it. Well, the earlier one is, it was uh, the last film of one of my favorite actors, Nigel Green, who plays the- Oh, amazing. Green Knight. Amazing. And, uh, and it's, it's a very low budget movie and, right. it's, and it shows. But it's actually slightly better. That's than what I'm sort of from my reading. Yeah, in reading about it, it which it, has a better uh, cast, but is it, but is, you know it's actually a very good cast. The, the, I guess the canon guys just said just pay these people what they want and we'll put them on the marquee. Precisely, um, and and change the plot and add add you know a little bit more TNA. Yeah. And let's let's also not. I want to ask you a question too in a minute, but let's not breeze past too fast. One of the greatest documentaries uh, about movies ever made, which you just mentioned. Um, uh, I assume you're talking about the, the Electric Boogaloo one, not yes, the other. It's, it's yeah, the other one's the uh, Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of canon films is uh, one of the greatest movies ever made about movie making in the 80s. Yep. <laughs> now, aren't That's you a talking head in that documentary? I, I am not. I am not. not. Oh, no, my first job was on Masters of the Universe. I was a PA. So, oh, well, uh, I'm a... that's a, that's a cog in the machine. That's an important person. Yep. Uh, um, yeah, no, it's amazing. But I, so now that you're, or when you're done, Peter Pan, then to go back to the earlier conversation, are you going to do the Green Knight again? Would that be? Your... I would. To be honest, I would love to. I actually like like when I first. <laughs> When I first read about, uh, I'm blanking on the director's name, but I saw that he did the two Steven versions. Weeks. Yeah, Stephen Weeks, when he did the two versions of it, I was like, wow, it's weird that he was so obsessed with it that he did it twice. And then in the process of making my version, I, I just saw areas in which I was like, my version cannot encompass this. 
aspect of the poem, which I love. But if I made a different version, I could. And I, I wholeheartedly would be happy to make another version of this 10 years from now. And I think that would be not only an interesting experiment, but just a really fulfilling one. Oh, we'll get the son of the green knight, the bride of the green knight. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> the green knight rides again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I kind of love that idea of making the same movie every five or 10 years, just to sort of... Well, you know, even if you did, even if you really decided you were going to remake your own movie every 10 years, it, it would obviously be different. A lot yeah, of yeah. the first time you did it. I mean, look at yeah, the, no, the Hitchcock yeah. movies that are remade. They're completely yep. different from the original. Completely. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's jump in, David. Um, yeah. You want to just talk about some of the, uh, yeah. Do you have a, do you have a sort of order or do you want to just sort of start at the first one? Or I, I, I kind of reordered them in, in almost chronological order. And what right. the, the movies I wanted to talk about were, were ones that we looked at when we were figuring out how to approach the design of our Arthurian, our take on Arthurian lore. Mm, okay. And, and some of it was, you know, we all went in there, you know, loving Andre Rublev of course, like, and just thinking like, what if we could make a movie like that? And, and then uh, the War and Peace, the seven hour War and Peace that, um, again, I'm oh, pretty blanking the director's Andre name. Chuck. Yes. Yes. Uh, is it only seven? I think it's more, isn't it? Or I, I think it is a little longer than seven. Nine. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. So, so that was released right before we started production on the, the new 4k restoration yeah they were there yes yeah and so we were looking at that constantly too did you see the and theater no unfortunately i wasn't uh, we, were, we were in ireland when it came out so then it just got to watch it on blu-ray um but so we had as these high watermarks these two movies these two soviet era films that had like relatively speaking unlimited budgets especially war and peace which especially has the yeah. government behind it um and we realized okay we can't do that that's what we want to do but we can't do that um and so we started looking at other films that sort of created their own worlds on a more limited scale and the ways in which they did that. And so the films I want to talk about today were just a number of those ones that were really inspirational to us in terms of the design of our world, which, which isn't rooted in reality. It's rooted in some degree of reality, but it doesn't take place in any particular century or any particular age. It just is this general fantasy medieval feel. And right. so, and so, so I wanted to just go through a couple of the movies we we uh, we looked at for reference. Yeah, no, absolutely. And by the way, I just I looked this up a little while ago. Actually, after I seen it and was boggled by it, uh, somebody did adjusted the budget of War and Peace to um, uh, American dollars in 2021, and I believe it was 850 million dollars. <laughs> not surprising. I mean, not su- you look at that movie and it's just like, okay, yeah, that's 800. That's a you know whatever Amazon's spending on Lord of the Rings right now is like yeah. half that. <laughs> half <laughs> that exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, if I'm your producers trying to keep this thing to a budget, it does not excite me that you're watching the most expensive movie. Oh, ever I know. Made for- <laughs> Well, I keep doing that on, on, on Ain't Them Body Saints. Bradford Young and I were just like, our reference point was Heaven's Gate. Oh. And then like day, day two of principal photography, we were like, we shouldn't have watched that that many times. <laughs> this is killing us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the, you know, one of the things we talked about close-ups earlier. And one of the things that um, we looked at was uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc from hmm. 1928, the Dreyer film. And one of the reasons I wanted to look at that, that's a movie that's very historically accurate. Like everything in that is, you know, true to medieval France, but you don't see much of it because mm-hmm. Dreyer just kept moving the camera closer to Maria Facconetti's face. And so most of the movie is like, looks like it's shot against a white wall. And, right, yeah. and we, we looked at that as like, 
you know, an example of how much we could get away with when we have like sets that are limited. We like, you know, we did have a couple of big sets, but then a lot of the other ones, you know, we had three walls or we had just a few flats or a very modern bedroom that we'd put some wallpaper up in and things that didn't quite hold up to true historical standards. And we looked at what uh, Dreyer and his production designers, uh, Herman Kermit Warm and John Hugo did for their, um, for how they, how they utilize their sets uh, as a way to like think like, okay, we can just do the same thing. <laughs> you know, not for the same reason, even though we ultimately did do it for the same reason, but we, you know, we were like, here's one of the greatest medieval films of all time. And it's almost entirely in close up. So if we right. are finding ourselves frustrated by our lack of resources or our lack of castles, as it were, we know that we can count on a really good close up to, uh, to carry that weight. And of course, uh, I know that uh, Dreyer's financiers were incredibly angry with him for building like an entire replica of Ruined Castle. And then, you know, you only see it at the end of the film, but it also pays off. Like when you finally see the scope at the climax of that film, it really pays off after having been in such a claustrophobic environment for the preceding 80 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's and, right. and, and that's the important thing is I think people lose sight of that. It's not, you know, uh, it's not about the screen time. It's about the impact. Exactly. And then another one we looked at was uh, The Devils, uh, Ken Russell's The Devils, which Ugh. it still boggles my mind, especially it's in the discourse now because of Space Jam. I'm sure you've heard about it. Oh, that's how, right. Yeah. Do you know this, Joe? Yes, because they, they, they're, they're, uh, yeah. amazingly, I mean, here's a movie that they, they're, they're so ashamed of that they've kept it off the market virtually for every, you know, well, for years. And uh, because they're terrified about it. And yet they let the guys who made Space Jam take images of, of the nuns in the devils and oh, put them I, into there. I bet nobody knew. That's what I, 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 I the whole purpose of that, the whole purpose of the Space Jam thing is to use your IP. I mean, they've got, <laughs> it's all about, it's all about what we own. And apparently they were fairly indiscriminate about what they allowed to go into. Well, yeah, the, the three droogs, Alex, is Alex in it or just his three droogs show up in the background the as well at one point? Yeah. yeah. The kids all love that though. You yeah. Know, yeah. They, they love, they love I, I somewhere there's a kid going the devils the devils and i i would like to meet that child who, uh, yeah, I, who caught that reference <laughs> i have to imagine like i can only imagine just knowing myself as a practical joker yeah. and someone who loves to mess with you know corporate ip i i would have done that if i i would not have made space jam too because i don't like i'm not a basketball fan but had i done that had I you found yourself in that yes, yes maybe, maybe they maybe definitely. they snuck it in and then it was That's too late to change it <laughs> yeah or no one knew what it was Oh, they can't. I don't think. They, I think everyone. I think. I think. Like, I can only imagine. Like, seeing like the behind the scenes stills. Like, everyone's watching their dailies on picks, and they're like, "Oh, that must be the nun from the Conjuring." That's got that, exactly. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I would wager because they're you know there's uh it's it's a it's a they have forty five year old. They, they knew what it was. They had to clear the images. They, those that's true. At some point. At some point. Yes. Who do we well, have to pay? Are they dead yet? You know, that's all they care about. Well, what a marvelous way to just reintroduce the devils into modern discourse and remind the children, brothers the that they need they need to release a nice they should, they should they should reintroduce it to the warner brothers lawyers so that they release the movie <laughs> yes Completely. Completely. hey you loved her in space jam <laughs> this but, yeah, but, that is, but, it, but yeah. design wise i mean that it was an astonishing movie. robin cartwright who uh was a set dresser in 2001 did the production design but even more notably i think was that derek jarman i think that was his first that's right set design credit and yeah. they built that entire city like they built the whole thing um but it looks 
it looks huge. It looks truly epic, but it also and it looks modern in a strange modern this, this strange artifice. And and what I looked into about it was that they had built it, but they they couldn't afford to like make it feel completely real. They couldn't afford to like put actual masonry up on it. So they just printed out that black and white brick tile and applied it to all the sets, which gives it that incredible modernist feel, even though the architecture yeah. itself is more traditionally medievalist. And, and you know, the interior of the convent looks like a spaceship from 2001. At the same time as it looks like a medieval con convent, which is maybe that's Robin Cartwright's influence there. But I, I just kept going back to that. And when you look at the... Um, the simplicity that my production designer Jade Healy brought to our great hall, a lot of that was like me just continuously just sending her photos from the devils, being like, what if it's just bricks? And we went a little bit more, we didn't go quite so strikingly modernist with it, but that sort of did seep into our, our design a little uh, quite a bit. Um, yeah, because your your design does feel, um, as you say, it feels like part of a, a real time, even though it's hard to tell what that real time is. Whereas, exactly. Um, the devil and the devil's mate. I don't know, but I remember every time I see it, I'm just struck by it. it's. It's so jarring and so unusual, you know. Just all that white. Um, it is funny. I was looking around for a minute and I realized I, I moved it this very morning. But I was I was going to dazzle you by people. I just got the Blu-ray of uh, Jubilee. And I was going to go. Oh, oh Derek, amazing, Derek Jarman, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> yeah, but um, yeah, and the devil itself is just beyond the, the design of the thing. It's it's such an incredible film. It's an incredible uh, movie. It's not. There's, you know, it's one of those movies that oddly is like, it's, it still would be considered controversial. Like it's still got elements, especially if you see the, yeah. I've only, I've only seen that, like, I guess the official version, it was projected at the Egyptian a couple of years ago and I saw mm -hmm. it there and that was great to see. And yeah, it's controversial, but no more so than other movies that get, I'm sure like Paul Verhoeven's new one. Yeah, like I, 10 I think times Paul, Paul may be out of doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I cannot wait. Cannot <laughs> Me wait. Neither. Me neither. So, the other thing we got from the devils was a reminder of how amazing Oliver Reed is. And if you look at what Joel Edgerton is doing in our film, he is, we just, we just watched lots of clips of Oliver Reed basically. <laughs> and we're like, let's just, let's just do this. Let's do Oliver Reed. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of manly men as we were, I, I, that would be a, uh, that's a, that's a high bar to reach. I mean, he's probably, um, the epitome of a certain type of masculinity. Not, not necessarily. <laughs> I think, I think 21st century genetics, like don't include that barrel chest anymore. Yeah. Like no one has that. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's just, it's just been, it's been weeded out of the gene pool somehow, but, but there was a time where it existed and it was glorious. And, and that tolerance for liquor. Yes, that too, that too. Um, and then jumping ahead to a movie that is about to be the remakes about to come out, which is, Doom, David Lynch's mm. Doom. And I can't wait for the new version. I'm, I love uh, Denise films. I love mm -hmm. the look yeah. of it. I am thrilled to see, you know, everything he's doing with it, but I still love what Lynch did with it. It's not, I get why he doesn't like the movie. I get why it's flawed. It's, there's lots of things that are, it's impenetrable in a really bizarre way. Uh, but the design of it is impeccable. Mm -hmm. and the, like, the production design by Anthony Masters, and then Bob Ringwood did the costumes. You can't beat those Bob Ringwood costumes. Like, you just can't. That is what, like, if I think about Dune now, like, and even the new, the new film, I think, like, the still suits look sort of evocative of what Lynch did, because you just can't top that. Um, but one of the things I loved about it was the sense of history that was embedded within the design of that film. It has a very 
almost like sense of Napoleonic empiricism mm-hmm. to it. And combined with the science fiction, the, the sort of the religiosity of the science fiction aspects, like all of the science fiction stuff feels like, you know, everyone looks like monks. Uh, but then you also have this sort of like the, the uh, medieval grandeur of the sets in the emperor's throne room and what the, the princess wears. Um, and, and then the, the military garb does have that Napoleonic feel. And what it feels like to me is like, over, you know, it takes place however many thousands of years in the future. And it, as mankind propagated throughout the galaxy over those thousands of years, it went through various epochs of civilization all over again and began to incorporate all of those things. And so having that dense sense of history that takes place neither in the past nor in the future, but in some completely separate idea of advanced civilization is really beguiling to me. Mm-hmm. And it's something, I, have you seen Hard to Be a God, that film that came out a couple of years ago? Um, I'm blanking on all of my foreign directors today. I'm uh, Alexi, Alexi, Alexi something. Um, it's this three and a half hour uh, Russian Oh yeah, no, I know this film. Yeah, I I have not seen it. Alexei German? Alexei German, yes, exactly. And uh, and it's set on another planet that has not advanced yet past the feudal ages. So it's a science, it's a medieval science fiction movie. And I just love that concept that like if if you set in a like if Elon Musk makes it to Mars and starts his civilization there, it's gonna be so small first as it grows, like it'll start to go through different ages that we've already outpaced at some point. That probably won't happen, but if it did, it's really like fascinating to think about how you would start right. to like just revert to certain things, then move past them once again. Did you? Um, I can't imagine you don't look old enough to have seen Dune in theaters. I did not. I didn't see it until it was re- it was like re-released on DHS when I was in high school. So that was the first mm. time I saw it. And what did you think of just the film aside from the look of it? Were you? Uh... I really, from the very beginning, I really liked it. Like I watch it probably. You know, every couple of years it'll pop right. up on Netflix or HBO. Um, and there's a new Blu-ray that's coming out, I think, this week that I have on pre-order from Arrow Films. Um, Are you familiar with the book? I have to admit, I never got through it. Um, right. And Sorry. I don't, uh, I'm not proud of that. I'm also, you know, for some reason, my grandfather was obsessed with all of He had the entire saga. And so when I was, before I'd seen the movie, I tried. Uh, because I knew, I think I had the storybook and I had like, I feel like I had an action figure. They made a couple like little action well, They did do action figures, yes. And a coloring book. So I had all these like ephemera from the movie, but I just didn't see the film until I was much older. But I did try reading the novel when I was probably like 11 or so and didn't get through it. But it's worth, I need to give it another shot now that I'm uh, a little bit more mature. The first one's pretty good. Yeah, I, I couldn't get past the first one though. They, they um uh, and then I, I have to imagine you enjoyed uh, John Rowski's Dune, the documentary. Definitely, definitely. And yeah. it's one of those, I, I, I wish that book of art yes. was published. Yes, it where's Tashin? Like, exactly. Where's Tashin? exactly. There? Yep. I yep. think my favorite thing about that doc, and if you haven't seen it, we're talking about John Rowski's Dune. It's a documentary about Alejandro John Rowski's attempt to make Dune. And they wait until the very end to tell you that he was like, Oh yeah, that's going to be fourteen hours, and I'm unwilling to bunch move on that for an instant. <laughs> I know. I would. I like. I would love to just see the the uh, the longer version of that discussion. Like you know, he, however many months he spent in a castle working on the screenplay and yes. doing the artwork. Like just like I'd love to see like the check ins that happened from the producers like over that period. Yeah, exactly. How's the how's the script going? Oh, we're up to page nine hundred and forty three. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, 
And of course, that had concept art by Mobius. Mobius, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, which is an amazing segue to the next film. Wait. Which was Moby Dick. <laughs> Masters of the Universe? <laughs> well, th- that's what I, you know, by way of Masters <laughs> of the Universe, yeah. also Willow, which he did. Ah, con- okay. That's so the two, the, two, the two vaguely medieval movies he did, you know, art for, or concept work was Masters of the Universe and, and Willow, uh, which were roughly four years apart. Yeah. Willow taking us right back to, or you know, Master of the Universe taking us right back to canon films. Canon films. Uh, all ties back there. But then Willow was a movie that I saw when I was, when it opened. I was obsessed. I was a big Lucasfilm. That was like, you know, the reason I got into making movies was Star Wars. And so I was six or seven when it opened. And my grandmother took me to see it. And all I knew was it was a George Lucas movie. So I was all in. And, um, 10 minutes into the movie, 20 minutes into the movie, baby Alora Dannon vomits in someone's face. And I had a, such a severe vomit phobia at that age that I had fled the theater. I could not, and I, I refused to go back in. So I didn't actually see the movie uh, for another like four or five years, but I had every single action figure. I had the storybook, much like with Dune, I had all of the ephemera that went with it. And I knew the movie backwards and forwards. And it, is ingrained in my DNA at this point. Like I deeply love this movie. I'm very excited for the Disney Plus series that's coming out. I've got, I still have all the action figures and the Green Knight sort of was born because I had just found all my action figures in a box in my closet. And they're not even action figures. They're like little statues that Tonka made that don't count, they don't move. It's, a, it's the weirdest toy, uh, toy line from the eighties ever. Um, completely not playable, but very cool in, uh, in their own right. And, and you, you got over your phobia too. I got over my phobia. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I now, every night, don't they? I now, I now think vomiting is wonderful. You know, bodily <laughs> fluids are incredible narrative tools. Um, <laughs> but I was like looking at my Willow figures and kind of like just I've got a lot of action figures and I'm always like like make, setting them up. I was like making a little diorama of them in my backyard and just thinking like I would love to make a movie like Willow someday. And then that led to me thinking about making a quest movie, a medieval quest movie, which a week later led to me starting work on the screenplay for The Green Knight. And one other thing I love about Willow um, is the matte painting. The matte work in that movie is just top notch. And it exists like towards the end of the So so they're still doing that then, even though there's some digital, right? Yeah, so it has all the morphing technology uh, that was sort of like some of the earliest, that and Young Sherlock Holmes were the two like early digital landmarks for ilm but then all the mat work was still being done optically but they were doing these motion controlled optical shots where the mat the glass mats were moving shots and had moving elements in them and the camera was moving uh on an xy axis in a way that never had before and so there's a wonderful documentary about it on the blu-ray about how they did these mat shots and it really was the only time Probably that matte, photogra- matte, matte painting photography was as technologically complex as they pulled off in that movie. Because after shortly, you know, two years later, right. three years later, I think uh, I think Hook, gave up on it. Hook yeah. was the last one that ILM did, if I remember correctly. Like the Neverland, the, the approach to Neverland was the very was the, the final glass matte. Um, oh. I think I, I could be wrong, but um, a lot of those were done by uh, artist named Michael Pangragio. Who sure. Joe, you worked I know, with. I know, uh, Mike, yeah. Yeah. And who still works for Weta Digital now. And so we talked, I talked early on in Green Knight, uh, in, in the development, I talked to John Knoll at ILM about doing um, 
like how just how to do glass map paint. So I was thinking like maybe we could actually pull some off for this movie. Um, and we just didn't have the prep time necessary to like really, we were still designing our sets. We were still figuring out how we we're gonna shoot the movie and we just didn't have the time necessary to figure out what shots we would want to do them for and how they would benefit us. Mm-hmm. But we did do, I did have my, my brother's a, a classically trained artist and I did have him do uh, one big set extension uh, that he hand painted and we composited it digitally, but you know, it's a full set extension with hand painted extras in the background and things like that, which makes me very happy. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I, I miss that stuff. I, um, ah, the old school. Yeah, Earthquake was my first awareness as a child because I was obsessed with that movie. And that's when I first learned about matte paintings and Albert Whitlock and thought, what a cool job. I remember, you know, before I even had a video camera, I would, you know, be writing scripts and wanting to make, you know, these little miniature epics that I was writing. And I would make matte paintings and cut out, I do them on cardboard because that's like cereal boxes. That's what I had. And then I would cut out the little area where I would do the live action and I had no way to film them, but I would actually go ahead and I'd go to the trouble of setting it all up and lining it all up <laughs> and then think, well, someday I'll get a camera and I can shoot this. And then of course, you know, I'd lose interest and move on to another project. But I, I did <laughs> many, many, many like matte paintings on cardboard in my, uh, in my early days as a, as a burgeoning filmmaker. So, so wait, because most people generally start with a camera. I grew up without, my parents were, um, they, they, we didn't have a television growing up. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, were, they, they took us to movies. They loved movies, but the, you know, movies were a big screen thing. And they wanted, our, they wanted us to be raised without screens in the household. So at home it was books and we could read anything we wanted, no limits, but we just didn't have a television until I was about 11 or 12. And then they finally broke down and got one. Um, but as a result, we also didn't have a camcorder. And so I had a family friend of my dad's who uh, every now and then would come to town and bring his camera with him, or we'd go to Wisconsin to go visit him. And every time we'd have one of those trips, I would just have like six or seven little screenplays that I'd written. Yeah. And so so my (laughs) my siblings and I could all just like make a couple movies. So I still got all those on VHS and and they do have some big cardboard matte paintings in them. (laughs) Uh, That's fantastic. So next on my list was a movie that was, really important to me around the time that my parents got their television. And that was Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, mm. which isn't talked about much these days. Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, I sort of uh, uh, stumbled you, across it the other day. And I thought, How come this? Because it was such an event when it came out. And that was his arrival, too. It, it to me, like looking back on it now, this is a little hyperbolic to say, but I feel like it is a Citizen Kane level debut. And the only thing that maybe makes it lesser is that it's not an original screenplay. It's an adaptation. But in terms of like just announcing oneself as a director of note. Yes. Who's also starring in the movie. It is, it's incredible. It's a really fantastic movie. Also, by the way, not not to knock Orson, but you know, the the thing Brana had was he was a world-class Shakespearean actor. Orson Welles is a pretty good actor. Yes, that's true. Brana's like. He was already there. He was already there as an actor. Um, and one of the things, again, this is a very naturalistic medieval film. Everything feels pretty real. But one of the things that I love about it was how he blows a hole in that verisimilitude by having Der- Derek Jacobi as the chorus, uh, existing in modern times, like, and he's introduced, you know, uh, lighting a match, you know, the, oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. He lights a match and then he just hits a breaker and turns on the lights on the soundstage <laughs> and walks past all of the you know, the ephemera of filmmaking, 
before plunging into the movie itself and taking it. And then he pops, you know, he returns throughout the movie. And that level of meta narrative was something that really, I thought about a lot. I thought about it a lot while we were doing Green Knight and whether we should actually do something like that. Um, ultimately, I chose not to. And the story of why I chose not to is a long and crazy one involving a trip to Berlin and reading some Borgia short stories. But anyway, I, um, I did look at the set design. You know, Derek Jackby walks into that great hall with those big doors where the uh, opening of the movie then takes place. And you have that amazing silhouette of, uh, of King Hal, uh, King Harry down there at the bottom of these two giant grand doors entering a great hall that is fairly minimalist. And um, I kept going, as we were trying to figure out our design of our great hall, I kept going back to that minimalism. That and the, that and the devils were two things I just kept going back to. Um, and you see that when the green knight comes into the great hall, just that little yeah. figure beneath those two giant, those two giant doors. Um, but I, I would highly recommend anyone who hasn't seen this, watch it. Um, yeah, it's, it's sort of been uh, subsumed by the Olivier version because that's one that, uh, you know, that was the first one. And yeah. it's also in, it, in its way, it's also kind of meta because it's filled with obvious stage backings and yep. it's not supposed to be real. Um, but I, I think the, uh, the Brana version has been sort of swept away for a while. I mean, it's not one of the ones that people think of. Also by his own career. Like it's, his career has taken, you know, he's making, he stopped, he stopped making this. He was all, just doing Shakespeare for a long time, setting aside like uh, Dead Again and right. a couple of the other smaller films. He was, he was, you know, after Hamlet, he did Love's Labor's Lost. And then it was sort of like his Shakespeare period was over. Aside from the movie he made last year where he played Shakespeare. Um, That's right, but I would, um, which I've not seen yet. And he also, uh, what was the? Um, um, I loved it, the uh, Wallander, uh, which was such an interesting. It was a British TV series, uh, which I've not series, seen. Uh, I think they had like three seasons of like three or four ninety-minute movies, uh, contained but sort of in an arc, and it's based on a Swedish, let's say Swedish, uh, television series where he's a sort of um, a detective. And it's shot in Sweden, and they're 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 amazing. They're really, really, really good. Was this before um, he did Henry V, or was it? No, this is a couple of years ago. Okay, I didn't know. Yeah, fairly recent. And I think I gotta look. Is it is it um, uh, a perfect? Yes, perfect opportunity to mention our sponsor show because I was going. Is Henry V even on Blu-ray? Um, <laughs> it yes, is, it yeah, is. Yeah. And Movies Unlimited has it. Our our fantastic sponsor. Wonderful. Uh, yes. Um, I got. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, I have the laser disc. That's the last time I. <laughs> Yep, I yep. watched it. Watch out for laser rot. Uh, I think it's dust down, Joe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be getting that Blu-ray. You can get that Henry V Blu-ray and a lot of the other movies that David talks about this week at MoviesUnlimited.com. You can't, unfortunately, or fortunately, buy laser discs there. Pretty sure you can't buy laser discs anywhere. Um, but uh, Movies Unlimited is great. There are sponsors. Uh, you know, I mean, you can stream a lot of stuff these days, but when you buy your favorites, you get to watch what you want, when you want. And there's usually a ton of great content and bonus features like director's commentaries, deleted scenes, and all sorts of other goodness. Buy your favorites at MoviesUnlimited.com. You'll find classics, imports, hard-to-find films, and of course, new releases too. The prices are great and the choices are endless. Own the titles you love and enjoy all the bonus features you just don't get elsewhere whenever you want. If you go to the MoviesUnlimited.com website, they've got a section for our podcast. You can click on each episode and you can see uh, every movie that has been discussed on the show and uh, a link to get it at MoviesUnlimited.com. They're, they're absolutely great. We love them. 
Shipping is always free on orders over $50. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw... Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or call the police. Or call the police like (laughs) she should have, exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then from beneath the Hollywood sign is the gin joint for you. The the next movie I've got, another Shakespearean film that I don't believe is available on Blu-ray, at least not in the US. And it's not on iTunes, um, but maybe it's on Amazon, but it's Prospero's Books, the Peter Greenaway mm. take on The Tempest. Mm-hmm. And... This was a movie that my, I think my parents went to see and were just like, you cannot see this. It's just, you know, you know, wall to wall nudity as a a 10 year old, I would not have been allowed to see it. But when I did see it, um, I think I saw after I had gotten, I kind of went on a deep dive of Peter Greenaway somewhere, you know, within the past 15 years. And I love, I love what he does. I love his formalism. I love the artifice. Uh, that he started to develop after, you know, the, the Drotsman's contract. He, you know, starts off with like Barry Lyndon and then starts to get more and more abstract as he goes. Yeah. But the film, tone, the films tonally all feel very of a piece. And, you know, P- Prospero's books was his follow-up to The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. And Which is pretty amazing on its own. It's inc- I saw that last <laughs> year on the big screen and it is, or the year before last, I didn't see anything last year on the big screen, but the year before last. And it was, it was just so great to see that big again. Yeah. It was, it's incredible. It's really incredible. This movie's nowhere near as audience friendly as that unaudience friendly movie. It, it's it's <laughs> like, a very it's less audience friendly than the Cook the Thief. It's a very abstract adaptation of the Tempest, and it is it's largely based on you know the idea that when Prospero was shipwrecked, he the only thing he was able to bring with him were his books. And so this movie is essentially a catalog of all those manuscripts presented on screen as the drama of The Tempest is sort of playing out in the background. And a great portion of the film is just spent looking at the, these incredible texts that uh, the art department came up with for the film. And you have uh, um, John Gilgood narrating them, describing it's like bestiaries and natural histories and all sorts of you know, maps and, and there's, there's 24 distinct volumes that they created and they used really early compositing, digital compositing technology to, to composite these images onto the incredible, you know, but cinematography, the incredible set design. Uh, it was designed by uh, Ben Benos who'd worked with Greenaway before and Jan Rolfs who most recently did Fast and the Furious 9, oddly enough. There's strange lineage there. Um, Fantastic. But he, it, the, the, the density of this textual information is just incredible, absolutely incredible. And it's, it's so beguiling to see text presented on screen in that way. 
and, and Greenway would continue to do this. Like the, the film, uh, I think the next film he did was The Pillow Book, which again is all about just a book. And so it's a lot yeah. of time studying these texts. And I don't know if it's because of my love of Greenway's work or because of my love of, that I grew up reading or a combination of everything, but I've become very fascinated with presenting text on screen. And there's quite and I, a bit of text in the, in the new movie. Yes, I, 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 I had to hold myself back because I just wanted, we, we, we made all these incredible illuminated manuscripts. And at one point I was like, I'm just going to spend five minutes as per uh, Prospero's books, going through these, these illustrations that we had designed from scratch. We had you know, amazing artists just coming up with uh, completely unique and original illuminated manuscripts. And you see them very briefly in the library when Gawain goes to the Lord and Lady's Manor and he's turning through these pages and Alicia Vikander comes in and catches him off guard. And all those books were, were made from scratch. And we had the most amazing art team who just like studied how an illuminated manuscript would have been made, studied the art style and created their own. There's all sorts of like scientific stuff in there, all sorts of astrological stuff. And, uh, and so all of that was coming from my love of, of what Peter Greenaway did. How did you go uh, and, all the way and hire monks to spend, you know, a month on each page or did you? I uh, would have. You cut we a had, few quarters. We, we, <laughs> had, we, had, we had eight weeks, eight weeks of prep on Green Knight. And ah. so a lot of the things that I would have loved to do, we just you had should, to expedite. You should get those books to Tashin. I want to. I want. I actually, you know, uh-huh. at, at some point I want to do an art book for, for Green Knight because we came up, we have so much amazing material that you just barely glimpse in the film. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. It's it's very rich in that level. You can sort of see there's a whole world going on. Completely. But, yeah. So jumping ahead to another all-time favorite, uh, a year later, another movie my parents did not let me go see was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh. And and yes. this movie, you know, I talked I talked a moment ago about how I would make you know these matte paintings and I would, you know, write scripts. It kind of reached a new level with uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I did not. I was not allowed to see it. I was not, uh, you know, I was probably 11 when it opened and my parents like definitely were like, you can't see it, it's rated R. It, you know, it was very, it was presented as a very erotic film. So definitely they weren't gonna let me see it. But what I did was I went to the bookstore at the mall uh, and they had published the screenplay. And so I just like studied that screenplay and adapted it and, and then built uh, costumes and miniature sets and masks and prosthetics for another and movie whole, you couldn't film for for an, for for a remake of Bram Stoker's Dracula that I could not film <laughs> and I hadn't seen and I and I hadn't seen it and so years later I got to tell uh, Jim Hart the screenwriter that story and he I had brought a copy of that same published screenplay uh, and he signed it for me and that was a high watermark for me but this film you know once I did see it I fell in love with it and the more I revisit it the more I go back to it the more it just stuns me I, I mean. Francis Ford Coppola has made no shortage of masterpieces, but I think on a personal level, even if it's not historically his best film, it's my favorite of, of his works. And what he's doing is just so bold and so fresh. And he's talked a lot, you know, we, if you look at the last three movies he made, um, Tetro, Youth Without Youth, and uh, uh, Twixt, he talks about wanting to return to being an amateur. Yeah, and amateur in the meaning of someone who loves what they do, to love the craft as opposed to being a professional, and you see this in Bram Stoker's Dracula because he is just trying out everything. He's just throwing every trick that he can think of, and it really represents sort of like the operatic nature of Godfather Three is there, 
but the deliberate artifice of one from the heart. And he's taking both of those and merging them into a horror movie that's sort of positioned on the fulcrum of film history itself. It's like, it's looking back at the history of filmmaking and how film developed as a technology and a, a storytelling, storytelling technology. And it's looking ahead to the future at the same time. Yeah. Cause it's all, it was all pra- practical effects that were available at what, at what point, Joe, like the earliest, um, like the, the early, early 20th century. Yeah. Um, he was, I mean, he was using like, he's using shadow puppets uh, yeah. to do the whole battle sequence at the beginning. He's obviously using um, miniatures throughout the movie. Like the scene where Elizabeth throws herself out the window is one of the most amazing yeah. combinations of like a live action plate that transitions in camera to a miniature. And everything was optical. Like everything he yeah. did was done in camera. There was very, very little compositing done after the fact. And one of the great things, now you get the Blu-ray and you watch a lot of the other material that's on there. He tried so many more things, so much more crazy like material that didn't work. Like there's yeah. so much stuff that just was too like too goofy. It, it all made like like a lot of the shadow stuff or the stuff in the castle with doubles uh, was just a little too crazy. But he just was trying out everything, and it is so thrilling to watch how well it all con- the stuff that did work congealed into a movie that really is just it's like no other. And and you have to talk about Eiko um, Ishioka's costume design, which is just you know. The production designer was Thomas E. Sanders, and I think that was it was his very first movie, and he had uh, he had done Hook, bringing it back to Peter Pan yet again, um, as an art director, and, and Hook was shot on the Sony lot, if I remember correctly, like immediately before Dracula. So he sort of finished he finished Hook, tore down Neverland, and built Transylvania, and the production design is incredible because it is yeah. every everything is inside. There are no exteriors in the entire film, and there's so many you know so many of the exteriors are just miniatures with matte paintings. But then the costume design by Yuki Yoshioka, who had, I think, you know, I'm sure Coppola knew from Mishima, uh, it just, that's production design in its own right. Like it is, the, the costumes feel like sets. And when I think of that movie, I think of those costumes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, especially like some of the, uh, just while I remember that armor that- um, The armor, Dracula the wolf armor. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Which I think like, Guillermo has in his museum now, which well, is, that would make uh, sense. <laughs> I, would, I, I, I look on prop uh, auctions all the time and I'm trying to get like, I, I really want some props from this movie. I, I haven't managed to get any yet, but they they show up now and then. It's what I can't, does the, does the Blu-ray have the, um, God, I should look because I remember when it came out on, on Laserdisc, I immediately got it because yeah, I was obsessed with it. And it had this whole thing that he had come up with because he was fascinated as always by technology. And there was one disc that had just eight different takes. It was one scene, mostly a dialogue scene, and it was eight different takes of every setup. And you could use your remote on the laser disc thing to to edit it yourself as you saw oh, fit. No, that's not. And then not. they'd show you the scene that he did. That's, it, but have you? But that's what he. It's so cool that he was doing that then because Twixt, when he presented Twixt, his idea was that you would remix it. Yeah, every screening would be unique, and that you would be doing that live with every presentation of it. And he That's, was, yeah, he was doing yeah, no, that, at that stuff, and it's so fun. Um, it really is. And and the, the, so anyway, the practical nature of this movie was something that we uh, took to heart with the Green Knight as much as we possibly could. And you know, we have the scene with Saint Winifred, uh, where she, you know, the spirit that he encounters in this 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 uh, abandoned house. And when he first meets her, she floats towards him. And we just were like, let's do what they did in Dracula. We're just going to put her on a dolly and push her. <laughs> and it, it's that type of effect, which is so 
simple and, and almost silly in its simplicity, but it works so well in, in context. And I, I love finding just old fashioned techniques like that that we can take advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. Also known as the Spike Lee shot. Too. Uh, yeah, exactly. Except, except we didn't. The key, the key to it is that the camera can't move, so she has to float towards the camera. Oh, okay, and yeah, then, yeah. or the camera dollies towards That's right, her. That's right. Yeah, it's a, he, he has yeah. the camera move with the yeah. Yeah, and, and Gary Oldman does the same thing at one point, and it's 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 one of those things. It's obviously just an actor standing on a dolly, but yeah. if you get the mise en scene right, it will totally work. Well, yeah. Robert Siodmak made it work good in Son of Dracula. Totally, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, it, it's not it's it's not the first vampire movie to do it. So. The other movie I wanted to mention that's related to that, I think an antecedent to Bram Stoker's Dracula. So this is not my list, but I just want to mention Tarsum's The Fall. Mm. Have, you, have you seen yeah, that? Oh, though? yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it's beautiful. The one he spent like 15 years making. Yeah. And again, it's, it's uh, Iku Ishioka did the costumes. Uh, she did all of the costumes for all of his films for, before she passed away. And that one is just one of those passion projects that, again, it's set at the dawn of cinema history. Uh, it has a lot of, you know, practical material in it, similar to Bram Stoker's Dracula. And it's just, it's visually just unlike anything else. And it's not, the Blu-ray is out of print. You can't get it on iTunes. Uh, but it's one of those movies that I sort of like that it's so hard to get. I mean, I spent probably 200 bucks to get it on Blu-ray to get that, that out of print copy. And I'm very happy to have it. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's no, still, I... There are still prizes to be had. Yep, there are still lots, everything right. is supposed to be available. Yeah. Um, so my next movie, jumping back all the way to 1978, I wanted to bring up one Arthurian, like one literally Arthurian movie, which was Percival by uh, Eric Romare. And the two movies that I sort of like, you know, I first started writing this that I thought maybe would be a stylistic avenue towards getting The Green Knight made on a lower budget was Robert Bresson's Lancelot du Lac and then Percival. And I kept skewing towards Percival because it is so deliberately artificial. Lancelot was shot what feels like largely in a forest. It's a very Bressonian, a take on naturalism. Um, but Percival is 100% shot on a stage. Everything's a painted backdrop. It, is, it looks sort of like a medieval painting in terms of its color schemes. The castles look like the facade of medieval times. It's very, very fake, but incredibly enchanting at the same time. And that degree of artifice extends to the storytelling itself in which the characters including Percival, uh, not only speak their dialogue, but describe what they are doing in the scene. Like often Percival will just refer to himself in the third person to describe what he is doing in the scene. Uh, and all the, all the dialogue and, set, uh, and, and scene description is coming from the original uh, poem. Um, and so it feels uniquely medieval. It feels like a very specifically accurately medieval uh, translation of uh, an Arthurian epic that is 100% stage bound and 100% created. And there's a really beautiful moment in it where um, he sees uh, a flock of geese flying and one of, them, uh, one of them is shot and falls to the ground in the snow and leaves blood in the snow. And that was all done with cell animation that was incorporated into the, um, into the painted backdrops. And it's, it's really like when you have those little bits of magic they're introduced into something that is completely deliberately openly artificial. It opens up a new corridor in into the ways in which film can represent reality. And so it's a, it's a strange movie. It's, it's a, it's definitely, if anyone likes the green Knight, I would recommend going to watch this because it, it does, it is of the same ilk. It's got the same sense of like uh, being pulled from a, a, uh, 
an ancient text, but it is far more true to the the letter of that text than we were with ours. Hmm. It's it's the only one we've talked about yet that I have not seen. Uh, it's it's I think it's I think it's streaming. I think you can get it streaming. It was on it was on Mubi at one point. A shout out to Mubi, uh, who uh, you can yeah, find. Yeah, great stuff. Great stuff there. That's how that's how I saw it, and um, and also you know I'll, I'll just you know tag team that with saying definitely check out uh, Brasson's Lancelot, which has one of the best movie posters of all time, but also is an incredible movie. And I feel like I, I feel like Criterion's been like on the verge of putting that out for years, but I don't know that one might not be available at the moment. No. You'll have to pressure them. Yes, I will. I will. Um, if for no other reason to have a Blu-ray with that poster, the poster is just unbelievable. Uh, but then I'm going to jump ahead almost 20 years, more than 20 years, uh, to Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow, which I, uh, I love all these movies. So no, no surprise, I love this movie. Um, it is probably... It's not my favorite Burton film, but it's one that I revisit every year at Halloween. And it has, what I love about it is it represents like a synthesis of so many of what the things that inspired him, particularly the Hammer Horror films. And it doesn't necessarily feel exactly like a Hammer Horror film, but you still get that vibe from it. It's a very modern, or at least modern 1989 interpretation of that Hammer Horror film aesthetic with the fog and the sets and this very specific type of film stock. And it was shot partially on location in London or somewhere in England, but also on sound stages. And they did the same thing Dracula did, which have these big sets, these big exterior sets that were all done on stage. Um, he worked with Rick Heinrichs, his you know, old production designer from back in the old days at CalArts. And, and it was the one time that he worked with uh, Chivo Lubieski to do the cinematography. And then Heinrichs and Lubeski worked together again on a series of unfortunate events, which um, took that to the next level where that was like, I did a bunch of research into painted backdrops. And I feel like that was the last film that really utilized painted backdrops as extensive, maybe at all, but as extensively as, uh, as, as they did there, where they, they took the classic old Hollywood model, Wizard of Oz, Gone with everything that would, you know, they really just like painted everything by hand and everything was there on set practically, but on these gigantic sound stages that were lit with a million um, lights on, this, on the top to get the daylight look. Uh, but I'm not here to talk about a series of unfortunate events, even though it does represent like an, uh, an epoch of, like the, the apex of, uh, of, of hand-painted backdrops. I, uh, but I, but hand-painted backdrops are not dead because Schmigga Dune, which is a oh, series, uh, oh, yeah, it just entirely, came out. entirely like, oh, okay. made to look like The Wizard of Oz. Well, then I'm going to have to watch exterior that. In it. I'm going to have to watch that then, uh, which I've been meaning to watch anyway, but that makes me all the more excited. It's something that, again, we've talked about doing with, uh, on, on Green Knight. And again, as with the glass mats, we just didn't have enough prep time. We were still like figuring the design of the movie out while we, you know, if we were going to do something like that, we'd have had to get started so much so early, so, uh, yeah. so far in advance just to get the size of the backdrops done. Um, we had a couple of trans lights but those are cheap imitations of, of a good hand-painted yeah. backdrop. And of course, Sleepy Hollow has some incredible beheadings that were, you know, very, you know, a perfect blend of digital and, and practical. And you can find a wonderful compilation of them on YouTube, which we had playing in our production offices all the time. <laughs> Big favorite of the Taliban. Oh, yes, unfortunately. <laughs> the, I, um, I need that video. 
I need that. <laughs> yes. It's um it's uh, also, you know, just watching an actor. You would look at the behind the scenes footage. It was um it was uh God, I'm blank I'm blank on everybody's names today. Who played Darth Maul this in episode is our real one? Sorry, that was my, I just pulled the, I pulled the thing you up pulled, on YouTube. You up. Just, that's got to add every single beheading in Sleepy Hollow. Um, but it was uh, the, you know, all the horse work doing, being done with a, a rider with a blue stocking over his head was, that was right. the same thing we were doing in our, in our film. Uh, and uh, it was just nice to keep those traditions alive. <laughs> so the last thing that I had on my list of, of influences is something that was very recent. It actually came out while we were shooting. Um, and that is Dark Crystal: Age of Resistance, the Netflix uh, the series. Which I don't know anyone. Maybe I don't know if you've seen it. I don't know anyone seen who's it. seen it. I've not seen it. I flipped out for this, and so it it was a weird thing where it just kind of showed up. I knew it was getting made. It had been talked about for years. At one point, it was a feature. And then it was at some point I became aware that Netflix was doing it, and then one day it just showed up on Netflix, which is often what happens with Netflix. You know, <laughs> the things will just show up, and I was a fan of the Dark Crystal growing up. I really. I was going to add that would be the next question. Yeah. I loved, <laughs> I loved the sense of design, the world building in that. It was a, it was a. I saw it after Labyrinth. Labyrinth was like sort of my gateway drug into the darker side of of Jim Henson. Um, but the thing that was so great about Dark Crystal was like that sense of um, of pace. It's a really slow movie, and. I make really slow movies. <laughs> I really like movies where characters walk across a landscape uh, and spend a long time doing so. And The Dark Crystal had a lot of that. Um, and uh, particularly featuring characters who move very slowly already, moving very slowly across those <laughs> landscapes. And, and so I was sort of hesitant about this new Netflix series. I was sort of like, you know, obviously the Henson Company was doing it. They're going to protect their legacy. But I didn't know if I wanted to see a series about it. I didn't know if it was going to be too CGI heavy. Um, and I watched the first five minutes of it and, and it looked like the dark crystal. I mean, obviously it wasn't shot on film. It was shot on, you know, a red. And so it had a slightly different feel to it, but it still felt like dark crystal. But I was like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can watch 10 hours of this. Like, you know, like it was like, I was like, I don't, this is, this is going to be a, a high bar. Uh, was this puppets again? or It's all this... puppets. It's all yeah. puppets. It's all set. I mean, it's obviously, it's got a lot of digital set extensions. And they do enhance the puppets' faces in ways that don't look like enhancements. You know, I didn't really realize, like, that they're, they're making the puppets blink more than they could do mm -hmm. practically. Things like that. Um, but it's all done practically. And within, within half an hour, I was kind of hooked. And then the second episode begins with this little creature just waking up, making breakfast. It, and all of a sudden I was like, okay, this is what this can do with the series. That slow pace of the movie that I loved now encompasses this little Muppet waking up from a you know, uh, long sleep and spending time making breakfast. And just, it, it is captured so lovingly, so beautifully that I just, I just instantly fell in love with it. And the series just got better from there. It just kept getting better and episode six, left me in tears and and so then i finished all 10 episodes go back and watch the movie the movie is now better because of this prequel series which is a very rare thing to happen like this this is the what they created what louis leterrier and the writers created enhanced the original film that i loved and and then i went back and started the series over again just because i loved it that much 
Um, and no one's seen it. It's, it's, you know, they, they're not making another season as far as I know. It's, it's very, well, the thing about Netflix is that they don't advertise. They so don't you advertise. Don't, yeah. if you don't know about it. And there's somebody or or they do, but their advertising is so laser focused on the people they think will see it that you would, you know, I never. And God forbid you should watch the credits at the end. Because they don't no, want to I, do oh that. God. <laughs> I can now. They've, they've fixed they, that. Oh, they fixed that? Yeah, you can. You well, can but you have, to, you have to you click have to... something. And if you, if, you, if you skip it and you don't click fast enough, it's, you're gone. It's so, it's, it makes me so angry. And there's so many movies that have credits, all the credits at the end now. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I, don't, I never use opening credits in my films. Um, and I take great care in designing the end credits, as we all do. So. But well, anyway. they did something. What was it? I watched something the other day. Um, I should make that. I'm not bad mouthing Netflix. I they're they're wonderful. I love Netflix. They're they're great. Or movies we, unlimited. I've got, <laughs> a, I've, got, I've, got, I've got a feature going right now with that. But um, uh, there was something the other day that it was like the 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 day. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was the the day it had come out. I wanted to see it. Um, it was at that movie Beckett. Uh, oh yeah, the, 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 the with John David Washington. Yeah. yeah, which I really enjoyed. It was like completely up my alley. Not not just personally, but if you look at the things I watch on Netflix, you go, oh, this clown's going to like this movie. And I still had to plug in the title into the search engine to find it because it didn't. I, I had the same I had the same experience. I mean, the, the, it's and, and what's 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 more weird is that here's a if you're a customer and you have a record of things that you watch, supposedly they're taking notes to find out what it is you like. So you go back on the site and it, you try to find the thing that you like to watch and it's not there. It's not. Yeah. You have to you have to type it in. Right. And it's like I'm I'm the customer. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. what's the kind of stuff? And I'm you're not, and you're hiding it from me. But but to Netflix credit, they paid for ten episodes of Dark Crystal: Age of Resistance, yeah. and it is huge. I mean, the budget in this thing must have been incredible because there are thousands of puppets. The design for anyone who loves classic Kinston puppetry, that style, like the the density that he would bring to his films, uh, it's unparalleled. It's truly incredible. Yeah, I, I highly recommend there's it. something about what are they called the, the sort of human-like characters the that, gelflings that that always really repelled me i know what you mean <laughs> and that's why that's why when i first watched it, i was like i don't know if i can do an hours of them hours yes. of this but <laughs> they they changed the design of them a little bit so that they're more and, and and again the puppet technology is a little better so they're not quite so stiff yeah um and then they have a world-class cast uh doing the voices including alicia vikander who uh, is fantastic as a golfling, <laughs> um, and uh, and so many so, like uh, Anya Taylor Joy is the protagonist. So many wonderful actresses wow. in it, and uh, Ralph Ineson, uh, Green Knight himself, is in it. Um, I felt like I was listening to my cast, or you know, while I was yeah. watching it. Um, and so, give it a shot, if nothing else, for the craftsmanship. But I think the story is—they really did an incredible job with it. It's really, it's really rich, and the handmade aspect of it. There's a lot of CG in it, but again, it's all enhancing mm-hmm. handmade aspects. Yeah. That's what CG is supposed to do. I think. Exactly. Yeah. It feels it feels so old fashioned in all of the best ways. Yeah, um, I'm surprised you didn't uh, mention Chimes of Midnight. Chimes of Midnight, I didn't see until about five years ago when that restoration was uh, was made, and and yes, that that was another one we looked at. That was one that uh, again that synthesis of Shakespeare. Uh, was incredible to me. And Joel and I talked about that a lot because he had just made The King, which again was another synthesis of various uh, Shakespearean texts uh, retold with some of the original language, but not uh, to the letter. Uh, Less so, I think, with The King, with Chimes of Midnight. But I love what Chimes of Midnight was doing. 
Yeah, it was a very hard movie to see in any kind of quality for years. For a long time. Now, finally, yeah. there's a criterion. And it's, a, and it's a beautiful, it's, a, it's such a beautiful restoration. Yeah. Yeah, and a fantastic film. Um, well, David, thank you so much for joining us, man. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I, you have a, probably a pretty busy schedule, although although you, you thought it would be busy last year. And now it's, yeah. you're doing all the things that you would have done last March. No, no, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a luxury. I've been in, you know, finishing one movie while releasing another and, and, and it's You're a, on a career high. It's a career high. It's, it's a strange period where I can like look at the way in which like the movie I made last is now I'm, cause I'm talking about it and we're talking about today. And I'm, and I'm also like diving into post on the new one and thing like seeing like how the green Knight has affected Peter Pan. And that's a really interesting phenomenon in its own right. Well, I, I, yeah, I probably cannot wait to see Peter Pan. I'll be looking um, forward to it. Yeah, definitely looking forward to it. And then after that, I hope you will um, give serious consideration to doing uh, the Green Knight. Too. I will make. A, I will make. <laughs> Just I will the make Green Knight, Joe. It has to be the yeah, same well, title. I, I, every it time. has to be. The, yeah, it has to be the same title, and it has to. Great yeah, cool. like like I say, like cool for Netflix. Between, between five and ten years uh, is like the right window to just do it again. Fantastic. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to that too, <laughs> and, <laughs> and whatever comes in between. Uh, thank you so much, Ray. This is a Thanks blast. A Thanks, guys. Great to and see you. Way, the movie is in theaters now, also streaming now. So yep. um, check it Take out. Your, you can't avoid it. It's everywhere. You can choose your poison. Yes. Don't watch on your phone. No. 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 I, no iPhone, please. No yes. iPhone. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.